Good morning, Maharangi Vineyard. Uh, it's Maz here, and uh, it's my privilege um, to be able to take this opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. Um, and obviously, it's Father's Day, so to all the dads and the granddads, fathers to be, I wish you a very blessed Father's Day. Um, going to be sharing this morning and continuing the theme that Lyndon has begun for us as a church family on uh, the kingdom of God and uh, going to be sharing from one of the most probably well-known parables that Jesus told which is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son and it's found in Luke's gospel chapter 15 so you have a Bible with you and want to turn there and join me in the reading of it in a moment, uh, do so as I just set the scene for us to look at this parable. This particular parable is um, one that is very dear to my heart. Um, in March 1978, uh, I gave my life to Christ and uh, I had never attended church. I'd never read a Bible up until this moment. And um, on that evening, Pip, who was my girlfriend then and still is now, um, gave me her living Bible, which was in three pieces. And uh, I was very fortunate she put them all in the correct order for me. And she said to me, start reading the Bible. And I had never opened a Bible. And she said, start with the Gospels. So I had to say, what's the Gospels? And she opened up and showed me Matthew, Mark, Luke. John, etc. So that night, um, by this time it was actually well after midnight, and uh, I hopped into bed and um, got under the covers actually with a torch to read the Bible because my dad was a Muslim and uh, I knew what he would do if he found me with a Bible in the house, uh, particularly as his eldest son. And so I read and I started reading and was absolutely captivated with the Gospels and with the person of Christ. And um, without any sense of exaggeration, I read through Matthew, I read through Mark, I read through Luke, I read through John, into Acts before I fell asleep. And uh, I, I just couldn't stop. And... Um, when I got to this particular chapter, it spoke to me of my own personal journey um, as someone who was a teenager, age 16, had run away from home and been on the streets and ended up living in Arrow Valley in Wellington and was very much a prodigal. And, um, and it revealed to me the incredible heart of God, our Father. And so it's an appropriate message, I guess, for Father's Day, but it's a message that is timeless and rich. And this particular parable is unlike most of the parables that Jesus shared about the kingdom of God, in that most of them convey one essential message, whereas the parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son, which is in some ways an unfortunate title, because it really is about the loving father who really is the hero of the story, not the son, the father is. And it reveals something about the heart of God as a father towards those who come home to him. 
And uh, it's even by secular people, it's been called one of the greatest short stories ever written. And unlike most of the parables, it doesn't contain just one message. There is layer upon layer of messages in this incredibly rich story. So I want to just set the scene and read the first few verses in Luke 15 to give us a context of why Jesus is telling this story. Verse 1 of Luke 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, that is to hear Christ. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This chapter obviously flows from chapter 14, where in the last part of that chapter, Jesus has been talking about the nature and the cost of discipleship of what it means to follow him and take up our cross. And he ends that chapter, uh, as we have it in our Bibles, by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And what's interesting is that the people gathering to hear him are not the religious elite. It is the outcasts of society. The people, they are calling this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. We, we don't have time to go into all the context of that, but this picture of Jesus eating with those the religious elite despised, it says that he welcomes them. The word welcomes is, is a Greek word that conveys the idea of by eating with someone, by inviting them to the table with you, it has this idea of you are giving them access to you. You're inviting them to have a relationship with you, to have access with you through a meal. And in Middle Eastern culture, this is called table fellowship. And this is essentially what Jesus is engaging in. And as we saw through that tremendous series Lyndon did on hospitality, um, that this is the way Jesus engaged with people. But it was more than just having food with them. They knew in that culture by being invited to the table with Jesus, he was welcoming them, he was accepting them, he was giving them access to himself. And by giving him, them access to him, he was in that sense then giving them access to God the Father. One of the things I noticed as I studied the Gospels and read through them is you know what's important to a person by the repetition of words they use frequently or things they talk about the most. And there are two things you'll notice in all four Gospels as they record the life, the ministry and the teaching of Christ that are important to Jesus. And the two most frequent words or images in his teaching and ministry are the kingdom and the father. The kingdom and the father. He came to proclaim the kingdom, its nature, and he not only taught about its principles and its laws, but also about the nature of the kingdom through the miracles he performed. He, he shared about it with words and he shared about it with pictures, a demonstration of power. But behind all this, he was revealing the one who he came to perfectly represent to us, and that was the Father. 
John's gospel tells us that no one has seen God except the son who is the closest to the father and he has come to make him known. So at the heart of Jesus' ministry was a proclamation and a demonstration of the nature of the kingdom and a revelation that the kingdom is governed and ruled by a father. It's a family business. And we need to understand that because how we then live in the kingdom and demonstrate the life of the kingdom is greatly affected by how we see God as our father. And this is what Jesus came to demonstrate. And in this very act of table fellowship, which in ancient culture conveyed the idea that if you invited someone to sit at the table with you, you were, as it were, almost entering into a covenant kind of relationship with them, of friendship and acceptance and of giving them access to you. I saw this growing up as a child and a teenager with my Turkish father and all his Middle Eastern friends who were really my community more so than the Kiwi community uh, as I grew up. And food and, and uh, access to one another through table fellowship was so important and so rich um, because it meant acceptance. It, it, it really did. And Jesus is conveying through the simple image the Father welcomes sinners. The Father welcomes the outcasts of society. Those who you despise, the Father welcomes them. And as we'll see in a moment, it's not that he overlooks sin. It's that he welcomes them because he's so eager to forgive them. And so Jesus sets the scene as others watch him eat with sinners. And then in verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. The word parable is in the singular, it's not parables. And what Jesus is going to do through three stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son, is to convey one message from three angles, as it were. We're getting three camera views of the heart of God as a father. And it's simply this, if we would even sum it up now, it's that God welcomes sinners and he and all of heaven rejoice and throw a party every time one sinner comes home and turns to him in repentance. Look at the end of the parable of the lost sheep in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Verse 10, at the end of the story of the lost coin, he says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That phrase, one sinner, is really rich in the sense that it conveys to us that the one matters deeply and dearly to God. Every one matters to him. And heaven takes great joy and celebrates 
over one sinner who repents and comes home to the Father. So if you really dwell on that for a moment, heaven is the happiest place in the universe. Because every second of every day across this planet, someone is coming home to the Father. So heaven is a place of constant joy and rejoicing and celebration. And heaven celebrated you when you repented and you came home to the Father. There was a banner hung in heaven with your name on it, with my name on it, and all heaven was celebrating. Heaven is the happiest place in the universe. Jesus then tells the story, which I just will bring a few thoughts out regarding the heart of God as a father in the remaining time we have. This has been a chapter that I have to be honest, I have meditated on for 40 years. It is so rich. Um, and then Jesus tells the story. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them, which includes the oldest son, who's mentioned later in the story. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of the country, that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Just very quickly, what we have is a story of a father with two sons. This is the youngest son. Um, in, in, in the New Testament, in the Greek language, there are different words used to convey uh, this ages and stages of children and youth. And this word for younger conveys the idea of a being a person of the present. In other words, typical teenager, just living for the moment, living in the present, unable to see down the path, unable to understand the benefits of delay gratification, but wanting everything now. And so he goes to his father and says, I want my share of the inheritance. As the youngest son, he would receive one third because the eldest received a double portion. Part of the reason for that in the culture was the eldest son was expected then to provide and care for the father and the family. Therefore, he was given a double portion. And so we're told in the story that the father consented to this, which was virtually unheard of because an inheritance is something that was received on the death of the father, not while the father was alive. In the culture of the time, what the son was effectively saying to the father was, I wish you were dead because I want my share now. The father consented and divided his property between the eldest son, two thirds, and the younger son, one third. And the inference from the passage that we have is that the son took his share of the property and he sold it and took the money and then went to a foreign distant land 
and he squandered everything. The Greek word for squandered conveys the idea of basically throwing his possessions to the wind, casting everything to the wind. He didn't have a care in the world. He lived it up and uh, he enjoyed, um, you know, fast camels and loose women is basically his lifestyle. And he squandered everything he had to the point where he was now not only financially bankrupt, but he would come to the point where he realized he was morally bankrupt. And so he had to hire himself out to the people of that land who made him as a Jewish boy feed pigs, which was just a no-no. And he reached a point where basically the inference is where it says that no one would give him anything is the fact that he was reduced to hiring himself out. And when he couldn't do that, the inference is he was begging for food. He had gone as low as he could. The world wild, word wild living is where we get the phrase prodigal from. And uh, some translations actually use the term prodigal living. It's the idea of a wasteful life that has squandered everything that one has been given. And the idea is, in the language of the New Testament, is that he pushes sin to the absolute boundaries that he can. And then something happens while he's in this state in verse 17. When he came to his senses, the idea of this word senses is the idea that he came to himself. Suddenly he came to the revelation, the realization that he had lost everything. He had left the father's presence, the father's house, and he was in a place of destitute. And then he says these words, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. The son, this younger son who was just living for the moment, came to his senses, came to himself, to the realization of what he was done, how he was living, and realized he needed to go back home. William Barclay in his, his work on the Gospel of Luke talks about the fact that away from the Father's house, we are never truly ourselves. And it's not until we come home to the Father that we really find ourselves and become who we were created and destined to be. I can remember as a young teenager, I turned 17 in Wellington, and I'm not even going to go into the lifestyle that I led and lived, uh, things as the Apostle Paul says, of which you are now ashamed. But I remember waking up one morning in the haze that I lived in and thinking, I'm in a mess. I need to go home. And I spent, I think, about a week hitchhiking my way back up through the North Island all over the place sometimes sleeping on the roadside, um, to get back home, which I did. And uh, that's another story. But I identify with that feeling very strongly. And so he got up. Coming to our senses, to a realization 
that we need to make changes in our lives is not enough. There has to be feet on it. And this is what the prodigal son did. He put feet to his thoughts and he acted upon it and he began the journey home. And then we have in the next verse, one of those incredibly but moments. I love this word but because very often in the New Testament, a but God moment is about to reveal something of the richness of God's love and grace. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. It was an undignified thing in that culture for a father to run. A father always walked slowly with dignity. To be able to run, a father would have had to pull his robes up, thus exposing the lower part of his legs, which was completely unacceptable and undignified. But this father, filled with compassion that his son was coming home, ran to him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And in the culture, he would have kissed him on each cheek. And I grew up with that. My father, to the day he died, we greeted each other, kissing each other on the cheek. Within the community I grew up with my father, um, whenever we met the men, we would kiss each other on the cheek and the woman would do it. But the men did it. And I knew no different. And so when I became a Christian and saw people hugging each other and I, I gave some men a kiss on each cheek, I discovered it wasn't actually the thing to do in church. Bit of a shame. So uh, don't worry, I won't kiss you on the cheek. But it was a way of greeting. By running to him, embracing him, kissing him on the cheek, the father was conveying to him his eagerness to accept him, to embrace him, to welcome him home. And this would have been done in the eyes of all the community. What the father was saying to his son also was this, and let me unfold this just for a moment. I accept you. I embrace you. I welcome you home. And I block for you. What do I mean by that? According to the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy, if a son dishonored his father and shamed him in the eyes of the community, he could be stoned and put to death. That was the law. The father knew this. And as he looked at his son down the road and saw him coming, it's my interpretation and belief that the father knew that if the community saw him, according to Mosaic law, they could throw stones at him. So the father ran for all the community to see, to embrace his son and let the watching world know, I the father am blocking my son from your condemnation and judgment. And I am demonstrating to the watching world and community, I welcome him home. There's a saying, 
that the one who could throw stones never did. Read John 8 to understand that. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. If you read earlier, the son had practiced his speech and went on to say, would wanted to go on to say, please take me back as your hired servant. What the son was going to be really saying to the father is, I want to work for my salvation. I want to work my way back into your heart. I want to work my way back into your favor. But if you look at the text clearly, it's at this point, the son confesses his sin. He acknowledges the bankruptcy of his heart and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's another wonderful but clause. But the father said to his servants, the father cut the son off in his speech at that point. The confession of sin and the repentance needed to take place in order for there to be restoration and reconciliation. But what the father was doing in cutting him off and intervening at that point was showing his passion and readiness to forgive once the confession had been made and repentance was demonstrated. He was letting the son know, you can never earn my favor. You can never work your way to salvation or back into my heart. It is given freely by grace. The father was not overlooking the son's sin. He was forgiving it and covering it with incredible mercy and grace. And he said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. I know I've probably gone a little longer than I meant to, but there's just so much to convey through this in the last few moments. Let me just paint a rich picture of the four things the father does really quick fire. He intervenes and lets him know upon confession and repentance, you are forgiven. And before the son even has time to clean himself up, he would have been filthy, dirty from his work and his journey. The father says to the servants, quick, put the robe on him. That is a picture of the fact that we can never clean ourselves up to become acceptable to Father God. He accepts us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us as we are. And then he puts the robe upon us to cover our filth and our sin in the best robe of his righteousness. The robe was a sign of honor and it was the father's best robe. And it was generally given to the guest of honor when they came to eat at the table. He gave it to his prodigal son. He then said, put a ring on his finger. The ring would have been a family signet ring that the father would give to a son. And there's much symbolism in this 
and it was a sign of authority. It was the same in our modern Western culture as assigning power of eternity. He was empowering the son immediately to use the father's authority in the community and the household. And then he put sandals on his feet, which indicated that the son had come home barefoot like a slave and a servant. In those days, those who were slaves or hired servants wore no shoes. Sandals and shoes were those who lived in the house. And so he was putting shoes on them. There's an old beautiful Negro spiritual. I love the Negro spirituals and blues music uh, where they talk about the fact that all God's children got shoes. And when I go to heaven, I'm going to put on my shoes and I'm going to walk all around heaven because it was a sign that I was no longer a slave, a hired servant, but a son in the household of God. And then he said, bring the fatted calf and we will celebrate. The animal that was killed for a feast often indicated the size and nature of the feast. This was not just a lamb. This was not a small goat. This was the best calf, the fatted one. And what that indicated was that the father's intention was beyond just celebrating the son's homecoming, but celebrating with the entire community that his son had come home. Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, was asked once, how would he treat the Southern rebels when they were defeated and returned? And the, those who asked the question expected that he was going to punish them. Abraham Lincoln uttered some famous words when he said, I will treat them as though they had never been away. Forgiveness and acceptance. This story conveys to us, like no other, the incredible heart of Father God towards you and I and a watching world. And I, I pray that as we capture something of the, the nature of the Father who rules this kingdom of God, that we too in turn, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, will be imitators of this Father to the world who so desperately needs to know that the Father is more willing to save them than they are to be saved. He's more willing to forgive than they are to be forgiven. I pray that each of us, and especially those of us who are fathers, will express the Father's heart to the children we lead the families we govern so that they will grow up knowing the richness of the Father heart of God. Let me just speak a brief blessing. Father, I thank you for every person who may be watching this. And I ask your richest blessing and an increasing revelation and understanding of your Father heart that you clothe us with the best robe and you treat us as though we'd never been away and you welcome us home. May we have your heart for those we cross paths with every day in Jesus' name.